You're listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, episode 007. You're talking about putting your fuck parts in my head where my brain lives. We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures made for life. This is the Touch of Flavor podcast. Dating and relationship advice by kinksters for kinksters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world. And now your hosts, Cassie and Rigel. Hey folks. So today we're talking to Dr. Jana Rangelova. So at the time that we uh, recorded this episode, she was actually trekking through Berlin and she had lost her voice the day we recorded this episode. Uh, and she was still a good enough sport to come on and provide us some awesome information. So today we're going to talk about uh, love and lust. We're going to talk about the difference between them. Uh, we're going to talk about the importance of each, you know, the importance of love and the importance of lust in a relationship. We're going to talk about some of the symptoms of infatuation. Um, we're going to discuss some of the most harmful myths surrounding love and lust. And we're going to dedicate a substantial portion of the episode to talking about ways you can keep lust from waning over time. So uh, tune on in. It's going to be great. And you can check out the show notes at atouchaflavor.com forward slash 007. Let's get to the interview. So today we're talking to Dr. Jana Rangelova. She's a New York City-based sex researcher who studies casual sex, non-monogamy, and sexual orientation. She holds a PhD in developmental psychology from Cornell University, teaches human sexuality at New York University, shares new sex research on social media, and runs the Casual Sex Process, a place for people to share their hookup stories. She is currently writing a book about the science of healthy hookups. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. Do you have anything to add to that intro that I missed? No, that's pretty good. (laughs) Except except that it's not the casual sex process, it's the casual sex project. <laughs> Today we're going to be discussing love versus lust, but before we do that, I was curious as to if you could tell us a little bit uh, about the casual sex project, because I find that really interesting. Sure. The casual sex project is a website I started about three years ago that allows people to share their true stories of hookups. There's a little <clears throat> a submission form where they're asked about uh, themselves, and then they're asked about a specific hookup, and they can write as much or as little as they want, as long as it's true. So th- that was something that I wanted to create because there was very little conversation in our society about casual sex, the way people really do it and experience it. There are very one-sided kinds of representations of it. Either it's the best thing ever or it's the worst thing ever. And I wanted to bring a little more diversity into that conversation. And I think the casual sex project has really accomplished that we have over 3000 stories submitted to the site since it's been up and people from all over the world have contributed from all ages and you know backgrounds graphic backgrounds and all kinds of stories you know from the best most amazing sex ever to the worst um, you know most traumatic sex ever and lots of shades of of awesome or not awesome in between yeah, I was gonna say. I think that's kind of the. I think that's kind of the reality of it. Instead of the the myth, is it really is everything in between, awesome and horrible, and everything in the between there. And a lot of times, you don't know if it's going to be until you have the casual sex with a particular person, because you never know. Like they could be really awesome in bed, or they could be really bad, or um, the energy could be fantastic, or it could just be lousy, and you really don't know until you give it a shot. <laughs> Yeah, especially, you know, if it's the first time and it's with somebody that you don't know very well, which is, you know, somewhat, somewhat often, 
it's it's a gamble. You're taking a risk and you might get rewarded or you might not get rewarded at the end of that. And where can people go if they want to read these stories or submit their own? Casualsexproject.com. I will link to that in the notes. Um, so today we're talking about love versus lust, uh, which I saw as a topic that you teach on, and I found this really interesting. Um, so can you define love versus lust in the context of what you teach around it? Well, love versus lust is somewhat of a false dichotomy. Well, it's not a false dichotomy, but it, it's, it's a dichotomy that needs to be a trichotomy. <laughs> so there are three things that we talk about here that we should distinguish, not just two. One is lust, sexual desire, you know, the horniness that we feel for somebody, the I want to fuck you now kind of feeling. And love has two different types, major types of love that we talk about. One is that initial stage of infatuation. And the, the, the other one is the later stage of more kind of deep attachment. And when people talk about love, they may talk about one or the other, usually not about both, but they are very distinct. So the infatuation stage, the initial stage of love, is characterized by very high levels of lust. Also, very high levels of kind of mental preoccupation about the person that you're feeling infatuated with, very high emotional reactions around that person. So if they, if they are responding to your messages or whatever, you feel amazing. If they're not, you're, you know, creating all these horrible, you know, uh, scenarios in your head. It is also, so it's called mood dependency, that aspect of it. It is also characterized by idealization, you know, putting on those rose colored glasses where you only see the good things about that person and you don't see the, the bad things, their potential negatives. And just a general high level of, of physiological arousal. You don't need to sleep very much. You don't need to eat very much. You, you, know, you, you always feel hyper because your brain is basically on, on a set of chemicals that are kind of like cocaine. And you're just up and hyper and hyper-focused on that one person. That usually lasts somewhere between six months to a year and a half. That depends on the particular connection you have with that person, on an individual kind of difference aspect, and and also on how much time you spend together. The more time you spend together, the, the faster that will wane, generally speaking. Then after that, let's say a year, year and a half, is when the long-term attachment is is overtaking. And that's just in ways, whereas the attachment kind of increases steadily over time. And that is that calmer state of, I, you know, I love this person. I'm, I'm um, emotionally attached to this person. They're emotionally attached to me. We're committed to one another. It's the, you know, we can sit, <clears throat> it's the, you know, we can sit in front of a TV, watch Netflix and eat popcorn and actually finish the movie. <laughs> stage, right? Real, real Netflix and chill. Yeah, like the real Netflix and chill. Whereas during the infatuation period, you might start watching a movie and then you might end up you know, having sex mid midway through the movie, even, even if you wanted to watch the movie for real. But you just can't take your hands off each other, right? So, 
I hope this is not a too, too long of an answer, but there really are three things that we talk, we're talking about. Lust, sexual desire, infatuation, that crazy, you know, mad, madly in love stage of love. And then that calmer, deeper attachment stage of love. So could you just clarify for me a little more as what you're seeing as a difference between infatuation and lust? I, I, I'm really clear on what you mean by the difference between, you know, long-term attachment and infatuation. But how do you kind of distinguish between infatuation and lust when you're talking about this? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> because it does, in some ways, the, the two are very similar. However, when you just want to have sex with somebody, that doesn't necessarily have to be accompanied by all these other symptoms of infatuation that I mentioned, right? You could, you know, walk down the street see somebody hot and be like, Oh my God, you're so hot. I just want to have sex with you. Right now. Not everybody has this, you know, some people need to be at least a little bit infatuated with the person in order to have a strong sexual desire for them. They will usually describe themselves as demisexual or something like that. Right? People who need to have a lot more than just a superficial knowledge of the person in order to feel sexual desire. But many of us, most of us, I would say, at least at some point in our lives, have met somebody that we didn't know very well and had a sexual desire for that person, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. You are one of those people, yes, like the majority of us. So, so lust is really only one symptom of infatuation. Strong lust kind of directed almost exclusively to this one person. It doesn't have to be exclusive, but the vast majority of your sexual thoughts and desires during infatuation will be directed towards this one person. Whereas if you're not infatuated with anybody, you might have lust, you know, 30 times a day for 30 different people. Infatuation has more than just strong lust, which is only one of the symptoms. The other symptoms are mental preoccupation with that target, mood dependency of what is happening with that target. Um, and idealization of that target and uh, kind of very high physiological arousal. I like that you're so specific about the components of infatuation because most people are just like, yeah, it's like the bright, shiny period. And that's kind of the all the description that you get. And I like that you have it nailed down so much, like what exactly is involved from, from an emotional response. Oh, yeah, no, this is not. I mean, we literally it's, it's not some, you know, mushy, abstract uh, concept out there of what infatuation is, it has these very specific, very specific symptoms. We actually kind of talk about infatuation as having symptoms as almost as if it were a disease because it kind of feels like that a little bit. You, f- you feel like you're under a spell, you know, uh, you know, like you've caught a virus that you can't get rid of because it, it's very distracting. So yeah, infatuation is not this like some, abstract concept out there. It's a very specific thing. I think it's really interesting that, you know, you break it down like that, because for me, um, it's very similar to conversations I've had around, you know, I guess just wanting to fuck somebody and NRE being two different things. Mm -hmm. I've actually had those conversations in detail with people that, you know, having a desire to, you know, want to have somebody inside of you or to put yourself in someone is very different 
than the emotional sort of state that you're in, uh, the physical state that you're in uh, when it comes to NRE and how there's those things where it might get on your nerves like a year from now, but they're kind of cute right now. And then after a year, you're like this little idiosyncrasy that you have is actually really, really driving me out of my mind and, and pissing me off. Whereas the desire to fuck somebody, that little thing would probably get on your nerves up front. Like you'd actually notice it and be like, "Ugh, I still want to fuck you, but that thing's annoying. But with like NRE, you're like, oh, it's fine. It's cute, right? <laughs> so. Oh, that's so cute. It's so charming. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, that's the idealization part. Which is why I think it's super important for people to keep this in mind. So, and yes, NRE is basically another word for infatuation, except that it's a word that makes sense mostly in a, in a poly relationship context, right? Because you have this new relationship that you're feeling this infatuation for, which may lead you to neglect your existing primary relationship. So, but that's, that's just another word that's basically a synonym for, for infatuation. And speaking of the idealization part, that is one of the most dangerous aspects of infatuation. So the mood dependency and the mental preoccupation are probably the most annoying and distressing aspects of infatuation because the mental preoccupation makes you not be able to focus on anything else. Like you can't do your work right. You can't, you don't think about anything else. You want to stalk that person all the time on all social media and, and just talk about them to whoever will listen, but you're just so preoccupied that you're spending a lot of time. And it, uh, so it's kind of annoying <laughs> and distracting. Especially if you have other partners in your life around you who are. Yeah. I was going to say like, you know, um, we have a lot of listeners that are, you know, in open relationships and that can be a major, uh, issue in your pre-existing relationships when you have a new one, because it's like, there's other things aside for this new person that you're, you know, infatuated with. You still have to take out the trash. (laughs) But you're saying that's not the most dangerous, that's not the most dangerous part of it. The most dangerous aspect of infatuation is the idealization aspect, because we tend to downplay all the potential negatives. And some of those may be very serious negatives. People often tend to make life-changing decisions during that infatuation stage, decisions like to get married or get pregnant or buy a house together or something like that. And unfortunately, yeah, those are kind of decisions that you can really take back easily. And they realize that a little too late, even if they're not married or have the child by the end of the year and a half, they're probably engaged or got pregnant by that year and a half. And then even if they think, oh, wait, something's wrong or things are not going very well by the time the wedding rolls around, they tend to, you know, think, oh, it's just pre-wedding jitters or, or, you know, something like that. It's all going to be fine, but it's not going to be fine (laughs) because the the things that you see, once those rose-colored glasses come off, those are the real things, right? And those are the things that you're going to, have to live with the, you know, the rest of your time together. And because you're no longer infatuated with them, they're no longer going to be cute and charming like they were at the beginning. They're going to be annoying as fuck. Um, 
And also, I think at that point, you end up having a lot of social factors that then make you try to ignore those things more. Like I have family and I have, you know, I've invested all this money into a marriage and those sort of things. So uh, even when you... Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. By then you usually do have the family involved and and you've invested a significant amount of time and energy and, and money potentially. Yeah, absolutely. So there are all these, we call those structural commitments that are tying you to this relationship as opposed to just your desire to be with this person. So what do you think are the most harmful myths around love and lust? Okay. So I think one of the most dangerous myths about love and lust that we have in our society is that love, true, true love, always has to incorporate both infatuation and the deep attachment or that the infatuation should never wane. That we should be almost as excited and idealizing and sexually desiring your partner for the rest of our relationship as we did in the beginning. And what that myth leads to is people's kind of um, disappointment with what happens over the course of relationships because they don't acknowledge the natural course, natural progression of things. They tend to think, oh, if I don't want my partner as much as I did in the beginning, or if I'm not as crazy about them as I was in the beginning, that means there is something wrong with this partner or this relationship. Instead of thinking, oh no, that's pretty normal. That's going to happen with any partner, no matter who they are. Instead, they think there's something wrong with this one. So I haven't found the one. I need to either you know, end this relationship and go find somebody else who is going to be the one. <clears throat> or, or we need to go and fix this and, and ask for, for help to fix it and bring it back into infatuation stage. And that is impossible. I think this myth also brings up another aspect that at least I see with like, I do a lot of coaching with, you know, couples and things like that. Um, or not necessarily couples, but groups and and other, uh, people who are in relationships that have been a while is that because of this myth, they actually think they don't have to work at their relationships, that this, uh, enticement and enjoyment in your relationship should just be that way. If you're really, really in love, you should be excited all the time. You should be infatuated all the time. And what really, you know, is necessary to keep your relationship good is to do things and work on things to make that relationship exciting and find new things that make sex work for the both of you or the three of you or however many are in the relationship to continue that. And because we have this idea that if we love someone, it should just automatically be the way it was in the beginning. Uh, We don't work at it. We just give up on our relationships. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, if you want more of that excitement, you know, excitement in our brain is created by novelty, primarily. Things have to be a little new, a little unknown, mysterious, risky. When you've been with someone for a very long time, you lose that mystery and, and unknownness because you know everything about them. You've done everything. 
or, you know, you've done something repeatedly. And if you want to keep the excitement, you sometimes have to be very, very, um, very deliberate about bringing novelty into your life. And that can mean sexual novelty if you want to keep this sort of the sexual desire up, but also other, other kinds of novelty, you know, going to different places and doing different things and breaking the routine in, in whatever way you can to, to bring more excitement. It's not just going to stay like that forever. If you keep doing the same things over and over again. So are there any other myths that you think uh, people should know about as far as love and lust? I think, you know, maybe not everybody has this, but you know, that you can't have love without lust or lust without love kind of thing. And which kind of goes along with the first one, I think that you said. Yeah, to some extent, but you know, there are some people who don't really acknowledge the, the, the lust in and of itself and the importance that that can have for some people. Oh, the, which kind of leads into another one, which is that, you know, love is more important than lust. That if you have love, especially if you have that deep emotional attachment kind of love, that lust is less important and should be less important. That you shouldn't leave a good relationship, a good, stable, loving relationship, because you're not getting enough lust in your life. I think that's another thing that we often do. You know, you get together with somebody, there's usually a lot of lust in the beginning, then you get to that point of lust diminishing, sometimes to almost zero with that particular partner. And then people tend to think, well, you know, all my other needs are met, all my emotional, social, financial, you know, whatever family needs are met. I guess it's not that important that I have good or satisfying sex. And they kind of tend to sweep that under the rug. That's not something that is valued in our culture as much as these other things. And so people often stay in these sexless or very dissatisfying, sexually speaking, relationships because you're just not supposed to put that as a priority in your life. Which is not to say that it should be a priority for everybody in the world, but people differ on the amount of sex drive they have and on the amount that lust and and sexually satisfying life is important to them. There are people who don't care particularly about that. So for them, yeah, sure, sexless marriage that is otherwise amazing can be great. But there are people for whom that is important. And and for for them to kind of languish in these unsatisfying sexually speaking relationships is kind of a waste of a life. When I think that's one of the cool things that non-monogamy can bring to the table as an option. You can tell I'm more used to saying polyamory. Uh, but that non-monogamy can bring to the table as an option is, uh, you know, it's, it's possible to have a relationship that maybe doesn't meet what you would need necessarily from a sexual end, um, but you're getting a lot of other needs fulfilled in that relationship and you have other options as far as getting those needs fulfilled. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that is one of the greatest benefits of consensual monogamy, right? It, it allows you to maintain that deep emotional bond that you have with someone and a life together, even if it's not, you know, swinging off the chandeliers type of sex anymore. And, and to get that kind of sex with other people outside. 
Okay. And what I think was, what I thought was interesting about a lot of your misses, I feel like a lot of them center around this idea of, um, you know, that basically that if you're going to be with the right person, you're going to automatically have both things all the time. Like you have to have them both and you're automatically going to have them both. If you're, if you're with the right person, that's what I found the most interesting about all those myths is I feel like that's kind of the common thread between them. Yeah. And again, I think it's very sad because what that leads to is these serial monogamous relationships where people think, Oh, this is going to be the one, you know, the previous one wasn't the one because the infatuation, the lust waned. So I'm going to go on to the next one. This is going to be the one until two years later or three, four, when no, (laughs) this wasn't the one next one's going to be the one. Right. And, um, and, and what that leads is not only ended relationships. So, Oh, that's another myth, I guess that, um, I think we should really talk about and address that, Every ended relationship is a failed relationship. Again, I think this is extremely, um, I don't know, extremely what? Um, dangerous, not necessarily dangerous, but, but unhealthy for, for us because most relationships end. Something, there's an estimate that something like 80% of all relationships end and they're just because they ended they don't have relationship. relationships they you know run their course if you enjoyed the time that you had in that relationship and you feel like that contributed to your life and you grew and you had amazing experiences with that person while that lasted ending that is not necessarily a bad thing but we have this notion that you have to stay with the person forever. Otherwise it, it, you are some sort of a failure, the relationship is some sort of a failure. And what that leads us to do is to retell the stories about each of these ended relationships in our minds as, as bad experiences. And we also often tend to stay in relationships past their expiration date. And that's when pe- things really get bad and ugly. Whereas, you know, if people realize that, okay, you know, this has sort of run its course, let's kind of end it before it's too late, then it might be much easier to end on a, on a good note, on, a good, on good terms, and not have a lot of that anger or hatred or, or pain that tends to get caused towards the very end. Uh, but, yeah, it's, the, it's this notion that we have that any relationship that ends before death do us part is somehow a failure and, and has to be remembered as a, as a bad thing. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right about that. Although I don't think that's necessarily like a love versus a lust thing. I think that's just an overall kind, you know, that, that whole relationship escalator idea um, that kind of permeates a lot of the world and even, even into the, you know, the kink and non-monogamous worlds as well. There's a lot of that kind of thought. Um, yeah. That's more a myth about love period. Yeah, I think so. In general. Well, what, yeah, and which we, <laughs> which there are so many of those, we could go on about those forever. Um, <laughs> talking about the love versus lust thing, what are some options for keeping lust from 
I guess, decreasing. I mean, it's going to decrease to a certain extent, but, you know, maybe not as much over the course of a relationship. Because like you said, lust is important. Um, and in a lot of cases for a lot of us, um, you know, just just love isn't the only important thing. I mean, the lust or a certain level of it, even if it's going to change as a relationship goes on, it is important to maintain that. So what are some ways that people can work to keep the lust from from waning as the relationship goes on? Ah, uh, the million dollar question. <laughs> So it is, first of all, it is going to wane to some extent. That's almost impossible to prevent from happening. But as I mentioned earlier, novelty is kind of the key to keeping it as, as fresh as possible. And because that lust thrives on novelty in the brain, you know, it, it's governed by the types of chemicals that are triggered by things being new. And so exactly what, you know, that novelty is going to look like is going to differ for every individual couple or throuple or whatever combination of people you have in a long-term relationship. But there are a number of different things that can bring in novelty, right? Novelty can be, so just think about keeping things somewhat new, somewhat unknown, somewhat risky that that can mean you know having sex in a different location even within your own apartment or outside the apartment you know renting a hotel room for the night or just going away some, <clears throat> somewhere it can mean different outfits you can mean role playing it can mean a new, you know new toys it can mean bringing <clears throat> bringing other people into the, so there's nothing more novel than a new person, right? <clears throat> but when people hear that, they immediately think, oh my God, we're going to have to have a threesome or an orgy or whatever. Well, you, know, you, you could, but there are a lot of different kind of shades of gray in between the actually having sex with a third or a fourth person and not even acknowledging that other people exist that you or your partner might be attracted to. And in that gray area lie a, a, a number of different things that one can do, like watch porn together, right? Just watching other people have sex, watching them engage in different kinds of sexual activities that you normally engage with, with your partner is novelty. It can mean just talking about other people who you think are hot or your partner thinks are hot. <clears throat> you know, even if you're never going to do anything with them, just kind of having a conversation. Oh my God, that, did you see that waiter? So fucking hot, yeah. It's it's funny that you say that because I saw an article a while back uh, and it was one of those things where I, I saw the title initially and the title was um, like, it, I'm trying to remember it exactly, but it was basically like, the new wave is like being uh, monogamish. And when I saw the title of it, I, I thought it was going to be something talking about like polyfidelity. Uh, uh. And I, but I clicked on it and it was this article basically about, you know, if you're having, if you need to spice things up, but you don't want to sleep with other people, you know, you can like go out and like flirt with the waiter and like, you know, then talk about having sex with the waiter and then go home and have sex with your spouse kind of a thing. Um, and I, I think there's even novelty to like doing certain kinds of role play, um, doing things like meeting your partner and picking them up from the bar. Like, yeah, it is your partner, but you know, 
who knows, you know, you can play the bad boy for a night or, you know, the guy who's hiding from the cops, you know, something like that and be mysterious and fun um, and try to pick your partner back up because we just automatically assume that sex is going to be this thing where it's like, we've been together for a while and I'm just going to fuck you because it's Saturday and we're both off. Like that's what it's supposed to be. So we don't have to take it for granted. Yeah. You don't have to entice your partner. So doing things like that, like going out and pretending to be somebody else can really add that sort of feeling of mysterious, you know, to it. And yeah, the novelty. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You can, craft you know if you really want to get into it you can craft little a uh, kind of um, um easter egg hunt experiences you know you can be like at this time be at this location and uh you know there will be a payphone that will ring and you'll get the location of the key you know when you pick up the payphone you know or something like that <laughs> and then then you guide them to wherever you want them to go and um, yeah, it could be like, so now walk the stairs and blindfold yourself, tie yourself to the, you know, to the bed and, and boy, there's, you know, it's like, there's all, all these little kind of sexy scenarios that one can, can put together to bring, you know, bring something new, bring something novel. Absolutely. I was thinking about what Billy, what Billy told us recently about how he, uh, left his door unlocked and like had himself blindfolded and tied to the bed and had a partner come in and do a whole scene with him and just leave with him blindfolded the whole time and not talk to him at all. Oh, wow. That's hot. Yeah. A little more. Oh, very hot. Maybe a little more adventurous than some of the options we were talking about, but awesomely hot. And that would be something you could do with an established partner. If you're not comfortable opening that relationship up to make things more novel, you can imagine whoever you want. Yeah. I actually just had that. I I also just had that happen with a partner. I had no idea what was happening, and he said, "Just just come come in. I'll leave the door open." And that's exactly what he did. <laughs> exact same thing Billy did. <laughs> he had tied himself to the bed bed post and blindfolded himself, and it was you know my toy to play with. If we get anybody listening to the show who decides to do this because they've heard it on this episode or the one with Billy, please, for the love of God, email us and let us know because I would be so happy to know that. And if you're doing it with strangers, you know, definitely make sure that you have, you know, a safe call person if you're doing it with strangers. Uh, (laughs) One thing if it's an established partner, but if it's a stranger, um, you know, have, have a safe call. Yeah, it might not be the the safest first date scenario, but yeah, no, I agree. But I think in the context of novelty in an existing relationship, that's a great option. Right. That's uh, absolutely a great option. What else can you do? You can, you know, then you can kind of push the envelope. So yeah, flirting with other people in front of each other or flirting with other people separately and then telling each other about that, but not crossing whatever limit that you've set for yourself, like no kissing or, or making out or maybe, Kissing is okay, but nothing else, whatever, whatever your limits may be. It could be even, you know, going to a sex party or some sort of a sex show or sexy show where you're seeing, you're watching people get naked and dance seductively or actually have sex without you doing anything with anybody. And then just going home and, and bringing all that sexual excitement and energy back to your partner. You can go to a sex party and not have sex with anybody but your partner. Right. And uh, so, so there are all these kind of progressively more and more, I don't know, um, 
involved or risque ways that, that you can spice things up. Another thing, and this comes from, uh, you know, I, I know you're going to ask me to recommend a book, and I think a, an excellent book on this topic is Esther Perel's Mating in Captivity. And she talks about the fact that lust often requires you to see that your partner in a way that is competent, where, you know, they're on stage and doing what they do really well, or you see them succeed or, you know, whatever it is that they do. Because we often see our partners at home in their pajamas or sweatpants, and they're not very sexy and they're not very, they, they, they don't display a lot of competence in the, in the real world. And when we see our partner commanding other people or, or getting the job done really well, that we find very sexy. So having an opportunity to observe your partner in those kinds of roles can be, can be pretty um, arousing. And how can you do that? Like, can you give us a, like, can you give like an example of how you would do that with a partner? I mean, uh, again, it depends on what your partner does for a living, but go see them give a talk. If they give talks, go, I don't know, see them drill holes if they, you know, (laughs) if that's what they do or build houses or, you know, something that, um, even if it's not a paid job, you know, if, if you could just observe them, be around them when they're doing what they do best. So basically get out into their, into their everyday life and see them doing something that they do well. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Somehow get a glimpse of that. Yeah. I, I think one of the, the big helps to, especially for established relationships for a long time is a change of scenery, like getting away from your everyday life stuff, you know, whether it's a vacation or going to a camp or even just like trying to have sex somewhere, not in your house, like don't get yourself arrested, but like getting away from all the things that basically makes your relationship stressful and unfun. Like when you're home, you're like, there's dishes to do. You got kids screaming in the background, but like stepping away from that and just giving yourself a chance to enjoy, you know, your partner and your partner's body. So I think just a change of scenery can be, you know, so helpful for that. Yeah. And, but there's actually something really important that I want to talk about in in this context. And and it's probably one of the myths around lust. So we tend to think of lust as something, sexual desire for a partner, as something that needs to be, that it always is and needs to be completely spontaneous. That, you just have to be in the mood in order to have sex. And the reality of how humans work is that that is usually the case in the beginning, a lot, like in the infatuation stage. And then after that, you may still feel that spontaneous type of desire from time to time. But much of the time, that is an unrealistic expectation. We have another type of desire that we can harness And we really should harness a lot more than we do in our culture. And that's responsive desire. And what that means is that instead of expecting the sexual cycle to go in this order, I feel lust, I begin engaging in sexual activity, and hopefully it feels good, and I have an orgasm. We actually, the sexual cycle can, can look differently. It can start with engaging in some sort of sexual activity and then feeling lust. So sometimes, you know, we're not in the mood. 
right? We're watching a movie or doing the dishes and our partner says, you know, or, or somehow indicates that we, they want to have sex. And we have a choice to say, no, I'm really not in the mood because we expect that we should only have sex when we're in the mood. Or we can be like, you know what? I'm not really in the mood, but sure, let's do something. Let's, you know, start that process, like start kissing, making out, maybe a massage or something like that. And when, when you start engaging in sexual activity, what happens is your brain notices how good that feels. And then the lust catches up. You, you start having desire because it already feels good, right? And then it feels even better. You engage in even more sexual activity. And then, you know, you have an orgasm or, or, or not, but it still feels good. It's kind of like going to the gym. If you don't go to the gym for a while, you kind of, you lose more and more motivation. It's, it becomes harder and harder to get yourself to the gym. But then if you do that, if you somehow get your ass to the gym and you do that workout, you feel so incredibly amazing at the end of it. You're like, oh my God, why, why was I not doing this all the time, every day? I saw a Facebook post recently by somebody that said, uh, if, you want, if, you, if you want to desire sex more, start having more sex. Yeah, yeah, actually, it's, it's kind of true. So, and the longer you go without sex in a relationship, the more difficult it becomes to kind of get back into it. It becomes more awkward, the more time it passes, you know, everything is just kind of, you're, you're out of practice with your partner of what it is you're supposed to be doing and, and how you're supposed to be doing it. And, but yeah, people really don't, it, yeah, they, they don't give enough credit to our response to desire because when you have a long-term relationship, you can decide that sex is an important part of that relationship so that you're going to give sex a try even at times when you don't feel like it, like you're not super horny. Now, of course, if you're really not into it, like you almost feel repulsed by the idea or you're really tired or really sick or whatever, and you don't push yourself over the limit. But very often we say no to sex that is, is not necessarily unpleasant. It's just like, hey, I'm not really in the mood. And if seems you just like a lot get, of work at the time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. seems like a lot of work at the time. You're a little tired. You're like, oh, we can do it tomorrow. No, just, just go ahead and do it. Chances are, you know, this is the person you like having sex with. That's part of the reason why you have a relationship with them or got married to them. So um, if, uh, if you just push through that initial kind of uh, ambivalence, you're probably going to end up enjoying it. I think that's fantastic. I feel, you know, I feel like a lot of times when we talk about about this stuff with people, and I'm talking about among ourselves too, but it's very we talk about it a lot without really knowing a lot of the science behind it. Like it's a lot more people talk, you know, a lot of us talking more from our experience than from really, you know, more of the science behind and the research behind how things actually work. And that's one of the things I love about talking to you is like you're really able to break a lot of that stuff down in ways that are are fantastic. And we could have had a whole conversation about responsive versus spontaneous desire in people and couples and men versus women. But I was looking at the, and I, I think she ended on a good spot. Yeah. And I, cause that's, that's a whole, that's a whole different conversation about how, you know, women tend to be more responsive and men tend to be more spontaneous in everyday life. And yeah, you can keep going with that stuff, but it's yeah, on average, but in long-term relationships, men get to the point of being responsive too. You know, they don't always want to have sex, spontaneous sex either. So uh, I mean, in, in, in couples, 
So about 30 or 40% of couples, long-term couples will experience discrepancy in sexual desire between the two partners or one partner has a much higher desire for the other partner than the other way around. And about a third of those are couples where the man has lower desire than the woman. So now let me, when you say that number, do you mean, do you mean that 30% have very serious discrepancies because otherwise I would like, I would expect that number to be a lot higher as far as, as the number of people who have discrepancies. Like, do you mean like 30% have like really serious, like relationship straining causing discrepancies when you say that number, or is that just in general? No, of, of course, you know, people have a lot more people have a discrepancy. We're not all at the same level, but uh, uh, that number refers to a significant discrepancy that impacts the relationship to some extent that, you know, maybe, maybe it's the distress is not at clinical levels necessarily, but it is, yeah, it's, it's significant enough that people, the partners feel like, okay, something's not working here. All right. So we're going to do the speed round. Um, I'm going to ask you some questions, try to answer them as quickly as you can. So the first question is, what is something you're not very good at? Cooking. Okay. Tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. Like, you know, there's no God. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, um, you don't really I, have... Uh, or at least that there's no proof either way. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Yeah. But most people in, in America at least don't agree with me and in the world. So, The best piece of relationship advice you've ever received? Enjoy your relationships while they last and when it's time to end them, end them. What are three things you couldn't live without? Popcorn, electronic music, and science. What turns you on? Abs. A book you would recommend to our listeners, and it can be sex education related or not. Esther Perel's Mating in Captivity. What is your biggest fear? That I die without leaving a mark. What's the most adventurous thing you've ever done? And it can be sexual or non-sexual, but just the most adventurous thing you've ever done. I mean, I don't know. Traveling alone. I think that's pretty adventurous. Yeah, around lots of different countries. While doing things that make her lose her voice the next day. I mean, that's plenty adventurous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, often without an ticket or, I mean, often without a without tickets and not knowing where exactly I'm going next. What is your movie star crush? It could be TV too. Can it, can it, can it be something else? Like Ruby Rose is is the only one I've ever had a celebrity crush. Can it be a celebrity crush, not a movie star? Yeah, that works. What's something you're working on right now that you want our listeners to know about? I'm writing a paper about people who go to play parties and, and what happens at sex parties, that's <clears throat> some data that we collected over the last year of, of 1,700 people who go to sex parties. So I'm analyzing, writing up that academic paper. I'm actually super, I saw that. I'm actually super excited to see that. Yeah, that sounds really awesome. You're not taking responses for that anymore, are you? Because I'll totally no, refer no, people to you. Uh, okay. Uh, and where, where can our listeners find you online? If they want to read more about what you do or your coaching or those kinds of things, where can they find you? Yes, yeah, so my website is drjana.com. 
which I'm sure you'll put in the notes of the podcast. Uh, there's also the casual six project.com for uh, hookup stories. And, uh, I'm at Dr. Diarjana Z-H-A-N-A on all social Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And I am available for obviously media interviews for private coaching, that's sex and relationships, uh, writing articles and giving talks and workshops. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, where we're building relationships outside of the box. Got a question about kink, power exchange, or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years? This is the place to ask it. Submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask, or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-TOF1.